So if you wanted to go to Montreal and you were heading south on the 404 and you're coming up to the junction of the 401, other than waiting a long time, you would have to make a decision either to go east or to go west. And so if your end goal was Montreal, which direction are you going to head? East, good. For those of you that said west, use your GPS on your phone. And so that's true because the, when you have the end in mind and you know what the end is, it, it helps you make decisions that you have to make to get there. Okay, now hold that thought. When you know the end in mind, it helps you make decisions to get there. Now we've been in Philippians and we've been studying about joy. I love that song, that version of uh, the, that we sang today on joy. And understand, happiness and joy are similar, but they're not the same thing. Happiness is a great feeling that we have when things go well in our lives and we feel happy. It's reactive to our circumstances. Joy is not a feeling initially. Joy is a choice, a decision to rejoice in our circumstances, whether good or bad, because we believe that Jesus is greater than our circumstances, and we believe his promise that he will work all things out for our good. And so especially when things are hard and difficult and painful, we can still have joy because we choose to rejoice in what Jesus has promised us. So there's the difference between joy and happiness. Joy is proactive. It is a choice of faith based upon the end that we know is going to happen. And so in chapter one, Paul said, hey, choose joy in mission. Even if you're oppressed and attacked for sharing the name of Christ, you choose joy because of you know who Jesus is, even when you're oppressed. And in chapter two, he said, you choose joy in sacrifice, not because you get anything out of it, which is what Kalen said, but because it's an opportunity to be like Christ and fulfill the command that he gave, even when it's difficult, because you're becoming more and more like Christ. So choose joy, not in getting, but in sacrifice because of how Christ shows up in your life. Then here in chapter three, Paul's gonna talk about choosing joy in hope. Knowing what the end is determines decisions we need to make. Now, I promised you last week I'm going to talk about something in particular, and I'm gonna need time for that, so I'm gonna have to barrel through chapter three really quickly. Verse one, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. See, there it is. Have joy. Choose to rejoice. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. We need to be reminded to choose joy. It's not natural. It's not our default. Complaining, arguing, despair, anxiety are our defaults. But joy is a choice. I, I'll t keep telling you because we need to hear it, all of us. Watch out. Now, he's going to turn to uh, watch out for those dogs. Now, that's a term used of, for, by Jews of people who were not people of the faith. And Paul uses it about a particular group called Judaizers who are following Paul into the churches and trying to get the people to go back to the law rather than follow Christ. So he uses their own term about them. 
Be, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, because they're trying to pull you away from Jesus. And those mutilators of the flesh, it's a term referring to circumcision, which they were trying to get the Gentiles to do. And he says, while that was an Old Testament practice, it's over, and they're now just mutilators of the flesh. They're not teaching you about God. For it's we who are the circumcision, excuse me. <clears throat> and he means by that, and, and other passages describes it, that the cutting away of the evil of the heart. Circumcision, as you can imagine, is a very intimate thing. It touches the most private part of our body. And it's a symbol of the circumcision that happens in all of our hearts when God, by faith, cuts away the sin nature and allows a new nature to be embedded. That's what circumcision spiritually is all about. It's we who ser uh, serve God by his spirit. It's we who have the spirit of God within us. In the Old Testament, only those specially anointed had the spirit, but we in Christ all have God dwelling within us. It requires time to learn how to listen to the spirit. If you don't listen for the spirit or understand that, it's because it's something you learn to listen to the voice of God. And who it's we who boast in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have such reasons for this. So Paul's attacking those Judaizers saying, they're trying to lead you from, away from Christ. And they would come and say, you know, I'm of this family, I'm of this rabbi, I'm a Jewish. They would list all their credentials and they would say, you need to listen to me because I'm a qualified teacher. And Paul says, if someone thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, well, I even have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. I was, uh, I'm of the people of Israel. I'm an Israelite, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I can trace my lineage back to Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, and with regard to law, I would belong to the most strict sect of those that followed the law, the Pharisees, and as for seal, I was on top among them, I was persecuting the church, and, and as, as righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. There was nothing you could point to in my life where I was in violation of the law that I hadn't taken care of. He goes, I was at the top. You want to get the top of the top of the teachers? It's me. I was there. But, now that's a contrast of statement. I had, I, I was, when it comes to religion, I was at the top. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. That, guy, that was just in the way. I don't even think of that anymore. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Jesus is far better than whatever they're offering you. I've been there. I know it. There's no one, nothing like Jesus, he says. I consider that garbage. All my degrees, all my pedigree, all my experiences, all my zeal, garbage. I took it out to the curb and I left it there because it's worthless and stinky and smelly and it led me away from God, not to God. Consider it all garbage that I may gain Christ and I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is in faith through Christ Jesus. Understand, the gospel of Jesus Christ is about a righteousness, and righteousness is a pure standing before God. And the problem we have as people is that we aren't pure. <laughs> we have thoughts that violate 
purity and the law of God. We have actions, we have motives, we have uh, intents that are all evil in us. We have some good and we have some bad. And, and great we have the good because that's what we're supposed to do. Like, you know, if a cop pulls us over and says, well, you were going 80 in an 80. <laughs> or better, better still, you get pulled over going 120 in an 80. And you say, most of the time, I obey the speed limit. And a cop would say, of course, you're supposed to obey the speed. I'm not on the roads to take out the people that are going the speed limit. I'm on the roads for you when you're not going the speed limit. And typically, when we're not going the speed limit, it's not below, it's above. <laughs> Doesn't, you're supposed to go the speed limit when you drive. Stupid law. Anyway, we're supposed to go the speed limit when we drive. It's when we don't. Because we did what we're supposed to doesn't mean we get a break when we don't. Righteousness means we always keep the law of God. And Paul says, I, I was at the top of the top. I was a, you know, a teacher of the law. I was a, a persecutor of the church. I was zealous. And I never, ever, ever received the righteousness of God until I came through Jesus. And his death and his resurrection paid for my sin and he offers freely to me the righteousness, the righteous standing before God because his sin, his, I'm sorry, his death on the cross for my sin covers all my past sin and all my future sin. That's how effective the, law, the, the death of Christ is. Only he could do that. And Paul says, I threw all that other stuff away because it was worthless, and now I'm found in Christ. And just stop for a second. I don't know where you're at spiritually. But many people I talk to, when I ask them, well, what would you say to God if you died about your sin? Well, I, I did my best. I wasn't that bad. Oh, yeah. I went the speed limit most of the time. Yeah, but what about the times you didn't? Which, when you're honest with yourself, are rather frequent, the times I didn't follow the law of God, the times I hated somebody in my heart, the time I manipulated, the time I spoke those words that were devastating to those people. What about them? And if you do not have a relationship with Christ where you have chosen to, to admit your sin and believe in Jesus' death and resurrection to pay for sin and then confessed and, and repented and turned to follow Jesus, then what are you counting on to deal with your sin? Paul says, I, I counted on the law, being, you know, keeping all those laws and doing the best that I can, and it's all garbage. I'm found in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith alone. We can't do it. We can't pay for our sin. Only Jesus can. I now, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection. As he rose from the dead and gives his spirit, I want to know the power of God in my life to live the kind of life that God intends. 
I want to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings. I want to obey him even when it means suffering for God because then Jesus becomes even more real to me, becoming like him in the death and so somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead. That is that frame. Attain to the resurrection of the dead is a phrase taken right out of Jesus' uh, teaching in the Gospels where the Sadducees come to him who don't believe in a resurrection and say, oh man, had a wife and he died without producing children. Children, and the law says that if your brother dies without producing children, then the brother has to step in and has to produce children through her for her brother. And they said, well, the second brother came and then he, you know, married her and, but she died or he died. And then the third brother and the fourth brother, and then they really lay it on six, seven, seven brothers all take her as their wife. None of them produce kids. And then they all die. Now in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? And Jesus <laughs> Because you don't understand scripture. Do you think, you, when we say we follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, you think that's a dead God? And they're going, I, I never thought of that before. And you don't understand the next life, the eternal life, and men and women are not given in marriage. You just don't understand. Only those who attain to the resurrection from the dead. It's a statement by Jesus that there are those who will attain to the resurrection of the dead through faith, and there's those that will not. And Paul goes, I'm doing everything I can. Enduring, following, obeying, keeping my heart and my love for Jesus strong so that I will attain on that day my faith in Jesus will carry me through. Not my faith in my works or what I've done. Now, think about it. If you know the direction you want to end up, it helps you make decisions. And so Paul goes, I know where I want to end up. I want to be with Jesus. And so that determines how I live. I'm not going to follow some teaching because it's convenient or easy or because it appeals to something that I don't understand. I'm following Jesus. So anything that comes along, any teaching, anything that comes along, I'm, I'm rejecting it if it doesn't take me closer to Jesus. Why would I follow something that leads me away from Jesus? Because I am convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. Well, exactly who he is. And that's what I want to get to right now. Not that I have already obtained all this, says Paul. It's not like I've been made perfect. I'm, I'm struggling with you. I, I, I've not arrived at my goal. I'm, I'm still here on earth. I haven't been glorified. You know that there's three steps to our salvation, three phases, not phases in the right word, three, pro, three things God does. Justification is immediate. When we have our faith in Christ, God says, okay, I cover all your sins with the blood of Christ. It's a legal word. There's no more any charges against you. You are my child. Sanctification is the process we're in now if we're followers of Jesus where he's making us more like Jesus through the trials, the struggles, the teaching that he brings into our lives. And glorification is that day when we stand before Jesus and he goes, poof, and you're perfect. You're gonna be a big poof someday. Paul goes, I'm, I'm pushing, I haven't gotten there. I'm not poofed yet. But I'm, I'm pursuing Christ in sanctification with all of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself to yet taken hold of this. But there's one thing I do, forgetting everything behind, all that teaching, all that position I had, all those things I taught, all the failures that I have, I forget them. 
and I strain toward what is head. What's ahead? Jesus and his glorification for those who put their faith in him. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And he's saying this to the Philippians to say, are you pressing on? And I say it to you. Are you pressing on in Jesus? Or have other things become a distraction in your life? Now, that's the beauty of Kalen's testimony. I'm not letting money be a distraction. Now, granted, he's a student. He doesn't have a lot of money, but he's a student. He doesn't have a lot of money. It's hard to give when you don't have much. You know what that's like. And he goes, I'm not letting money be a distraction. I'm going to care for it and take care of it like God tells me to, and I'm moving on. Is your money a distraction? Is your entertainment a distraction? Is your job a distraction? Is a hobby a distraction? Are your kids a distraction? Now, they're the, one of the most important gifts that are given to us by God, but sometimes we can seek to make an idol of our family. It's all about keeping them happy rather than making them holy. I had a friend this week, we were having dinners, and he was talking about his uh, kids uh, who haven't been taking their his grandkids, the kids to church, and he said to them, you know, your only job, you only have one job as a parent. And they went, no, what's that? He goes, to get them to Jesus. That's it. That's what you're supposed to do. Get them to Jesus. Now, whether they choose to follow him or not is their choice, but you get them there. That's a pretty good statement. What else could be more important than that? Are you pursuing? That's what Paul tells us all this because he's saying, I want you to keep pursuing after Jesus. Don't be distracted. Don't be uh, taken away from it. And then he says, all of us who are mature should take this view. <laughs> if you're mature, you'll think like I do, he says. And on some point, if you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. See the irony? You know, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. God will make it clear to you. By the way, he is writing divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let us follow Jesus. Don't let that go. Now, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. That's what he's been saying. For as often I have told you before, and I'll tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. How so, Paul? Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They're hurtling toward judgment. They're focused on what they can receive from this life. Pleasure, significance. Give me what I want. I am pursuing those things that I want. And they glory in the shame of sin. Paul says this in Romans where he says they take pleasure in the sin of others and encourage them to do so. Now, does that not describe our culture? But he says, I, with tears, I recognize this. Sometimes we can get into this battle, we get defensive. 
We lob shots at our culture. And Jesus, by his example, and Paul, by his example, and his teaching, teaches us, no, we ought to be in tears for those whose destiny is destruction. To really think about where this is heading and do whatever we can to help them find hope in Jesus. Jesus said the, it's plentiful, the, the harvest is plentiful. Find those in whom he's working. Rescue them into the kingdom of light. Their mind is set on earthly things. <laughs> you ever have that problem? I do. My mind gets so focused on the things of this world that I forget, hold it, the greatest thing is pursuing Christ, not getting what I want. As we eagerly wait, now here's the end part. Here's why we choose to have hope, we choose to have joy and hope. We eagerly await a savior from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, he rose from the dead, and then he said, I'm coming back. And Paul says, I believe him. That this world that we're living in now, one day ends either because I leave it or he comes back. But it's all ending, and then one day Jesus is going to come and establish a kingdom. Now, we generally don't understand that because we don't talk about it. So I want to talk about it for the next few minutes that I have. And he says, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. He has the power to bring everything, every politician, every war, every organization, every economy, every person, every crime mob. He has it all the power to bring it under his control. It's not random what's happening out there. There is a plan that's going on. We don't get it. We don't understand it maybe, but what would you expect of Jesus? That he would make a plan we all get? He's not that simple. He's bringing it all under control and he will, here's the poof part, he will transform our lowly bodies, these bodies that are dying and are, are hurt with health issues and that are aging and are getting old and, and creaky and uncomfortable and that's just when you're 20. I mean, it gets worse after that and he'll transform these lowly bodies so that we, they will be like his glorious body. Now, why does he say he can bring everything everything under his control. That is a reference to Old Testament teaching. See, for us, we live in the New Testament. Oh yeah, the Old Testament? Yeah, a bunch of writings I don't understand. What we don't realize that what God began in Genesis with Adam and Eve, he has been continuing on through the Old Testament into the New Testament and he brings it to a close in Revelation. It's not the Old Testament, well, yeah, a bunch of stuff, stories in there I don't understand. It's the Old Testament that began the story that God's continuing, and we are part of that story till he brings in an end when Jesus returns. And when he says, he brings everything under his control, that is what he's doing right now. And last week I said, I'm going to talk about this a little bit. I, it's where Paul said... He was exalted above all, given a name that is above every name, so that his name, everybody, every knee, every being will bow, whether in heaven, earth, or under the earth. They all bow to him. This is who we follow. 
This is not just a man who lived 2,000 years ago. This is a man who was also God. And from the beginning of Genesis, Genesis was promised as coming and he would overcome the evil in this world and bring this world back into an Eden-like state that God originally intended for us. And he will do it. Do you believe that? Because if you don't believe it, then there's no sense in having faith. But if you do believe it, you hope and rejoice in that hope, even though your circumstances right now don't kind of line up. Okay, that was the intro. <laughs> Before the let me give you a little backstory. Before the creation of this world, God made up an unseen realm, a spiritual world, we call it, the divine realm. Psalm 89, verse six and seven, for who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Nobody. Who among the heavenly beings, notice the plural, heavenly beings is like the Lord. He just said, nobody. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all the other around. So God created all these un spiritual beings, but then there's a council of the holy ones. Psalm 82 says the Elohim, which is a word also used of God, which means a divine being. So there's this, first there's this spiritual world called the unseen realm. Then God says, let us create the world. In Job chapter 38, we're told, where, where were you? So he's speaking to Job and he's showing Job that his wisdom is not enough, which is kind of what I roughly tried to say for us about Jesus. And he says to Job, God says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On the, what basis was it sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars, term only used of angelic beings, when morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, also used only of spiritual beings, shouted for joy. Where were you when I was creating the earth and all the angels and divine beings were celebrating? So first the spiritual realm, now the physical realm. And that's where we had Adam and Eve. But God created it with purposes uh, for this realm. You know, God had a plan. He did not, you know, today I feel like creating something. He had a plan. He creates this world and then God said, let us make, now let us, He's not, it's not him and Jesus talking here. It's him and his counsel. Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Well, what does that mean? And let them have dominion over the fish of the seas and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth. So just like we rule over the unseen realm, we're gonna create this man and this woman in this physical realm and they are going to rule over just like us. God said, be fruitful. Now this command is repeated over and over and over and over through scripture. I want you to multiply. I want you to fill the earth. And I want you to subdue it. I want you to just go out from here and I want you to take Eden with you and make the rest of the world like an Eden, a place where I have relationship with people. As far as we know, at that point, only Eden, the Garden of God, was where God walked with people. But he goes, no, I want to do it all over the earth. Now, at least one of those Elohim from the divine council rebelled. 
because in Genesis 3.15, he comes, we know him as Satan, tempts Eve and Adam and they sin. And then God says, he brings judgment on them. But to the serpent, he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her off. There is going to be a battle between the offspring of, now, what offspring did Satan have? I'm gonna show you. The offspring of her, of you and her. And there's gonna be a war between you two. And you're gonna bruise his heel, but he's gonna crush your head, which is a term for authority. So Satan rebels and brings evil into our world. That's where evil began, but it's not the only rebellion recorded in Genesis. Remember the offspring, your offspring? Who's Satan's offspring? Genesis, I'll just read it and then you can let the scripture speak. When, a, when man began to multiply, this is Genesis 6, on the land, on the face of the land, and daughters were born to the men and their families, the sons of God, remember that term is not used, is only used of the divine beings. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. This is going to blow your mind. And they took as their wives as they chose. So these divine beings choose female women and produce an offspring. Remember Genesis 3, your offspring? So here's another rebellion where more Elohim leave the counsel of God and leave the family of God. Then the Lord says, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for, his, for he is in his flesh, his days will be 120. Then the Nephilim, they were the offspring of these sons of God and these women, uh, they came to the daughter's men, they bore children, they were mighty men of old. And the Lord regretted that he had made the earth and it grieved in his heart, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created on the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, birds, heaven, for I'm sorry I've made them, I'm going to kill them all, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What about that promise you made in Genesis 3 that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of Satan and his forces? If you blot everybody out, because Satan then describes chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, is the corruption of the line of man so the offspring couldn't come. But Noah found favor. But even after the flood, mankind still continues to sin because it's in our hearts. And they begin to get wicked and more wicked and you follow from Genesis 6 all the way to 11 till finally mankind in chapter 11 says, look, I don't want anything to do with God. We're not going throughout the world. Yeah, you told us to scatter, to multiply and go throughout the earth. Nah, we're staying right here and we're not going to worship you anymore. We're going to build our own gods. That's why they were building this ziggurat. And God went down and he said, let us, meaning the council, let's go down and deal with these rebellious people. Deuteronomy 32 tells us what happened at that time. Remember the days of old, says Moses. Consider the years of many generations previous to us. By the way, Moses is an early generation. So you're not talking about the Israelites. Ask your father, he'll, he'll show you, your elders, they'll tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, when did that happen? Babel. 
He fixed the borders and the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, many translations translate that. I think you have that one. I intentionally gave you a different translation, the sons of Israel. Not because that's what it says, but because they couldn't figure out why the author would write sons of God, which clearly always refers to these divine beings. And so God gives the nations, in, like in Romans 1, he gives them over to their sin. And he takes the Elohim and he puts them in charge of the nations. And he gives each nation, people group, a divine being to oversee them. Here's the third rebellion. Because in Psalm 82, we are told that God has to judge them. Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council. Say that you have Elohim has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the Elohim. He holds judgment. Or Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly? Now he's speaking to these Elohim. And how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain what is right and the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy and deliver them from the hand of the... That's why I put you in charge of these nations. They, but you haven't done that. You've done the opposite. You've brought evil. And they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. You haven't told them about the hope that I offer. All the foundation of the earth are shaken because you have led these nations away from me. And I said, now he's speaking to these divine beings, you are God's sons of the Most High. All of you, nevertheless, like men, you will die. You will be separated and judged. So we have the rebellion of Adam and Eve and Satan in Genesis 3. We have the rebellion of more Elohim in uh, Genesis 6. And we have even more rebellion in Genesis 11. You wonder why our world struggles with conflict and strife and abuse and pain. It's not just because Adam and Eve fell, though that has opened us up to it. It's because there are these divine beings that have been given charge of the earth that have falsified their, their role and have taken onto themselves the power and the glory and have rebelled against God and they implement, they encourage evil and conflict and pain. Now I know what you're thinking right now. That guy has lost it up there. But you show me of anything I have misquoted from scripture. So I'm not smart enough to know this stuff. God has revealed it in his word. In Isaiah, God says in uh, chapter 24, on that day, the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven. Now the host of heaven, another term to refer to divine beings, and the kings of the earth on earth. There is coming a day when God will deal with those rulers who have misused their power for themselves and the, the people on the earth that have rebelled against him. God, there's coming a day when God is going to deal with that. Why would he say he's going to deal with the host of heaven if they're not real? If they don't have any power on earth? If they're not influencing what happens here? And why would he say he's going to deal with mankind if mankind was perfect or innocent or faultless? 
He says it because that's the plan of God. He's working out from the same plan he started in Genesis 3. He is working out. He keeps giving mankind a chance because he created us to be imagers in this world, to, to rule this world, to, to for its good and for its bounty and for, to bring righteousness. But we keep failing and we keep failing and we keep failing and he chooses more people and they keep failing and the, the, evil, uh, the, the evil powers of this world keep oppressing and attacking and there's this battle going on and how is it going to end my goodness what is going to bring about hope in this for to us a child is born to us a son is given the government shall be upon his shoulders rulership of all the nations will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end that's how we're going to overcome that's why Paul, knowing all this that I've told you, says his name is above every name. Every knee will bow to him. The Elohim that have sinned will bow to him. The humans that have sinned will bow to him. The, those, in, and this is going to freak you out too, read First Peter and Jude. Those demonic hosts that are in prison waiting to be judged will bow to him. Everything, everyone will bow to him. That's why in Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. Now go. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm running out of time. All things will be subject to him. All things. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 24, read it. All things. All nations, all governments, all organizations, all economies, all people will be brought into subjection with him. And his plan is, until the day of judgment comes, you can read about it in Revelation, because John is describing the end of the world system that started after the fall of Adam and Eve, and it's coming to an end. But before that end comes, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Now, church, you go and reach as many people as you can. Multiply through the earth. Go everywhere and tell them about me and bring them under submission to me. And then I am creating a kingdom out of all of you that have faith in me. And one day, that kingdom will be a literal, physical kingdom on this earth when Jesus returns. Now, if you know that's the end of the story, no, no, if you believe that's the end of the story, why would you stop pursuing him now? See, that's what Paul was saying. What could be worth more today than being faithful to Jesus and standing before him to hear, well done? Tell me, tell me what in your mind, your family, your job, your money, your health, what could be more important than knowing in that day I'm giving everything now to meet that day? I mean, we're watching FIFA World Cup where they're giving everything so they could win the prize, a temporal prize, which then they go fight for again in another year year or two. Whatever it is. And Jesus is saying, we serve a savior who one day will rule this earth. Don't give up. Don't be distracted. Don't let doubts and fears assail you. Bring them to Jesus. Don't let priorities overcome and take the priority of Christ. For what will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? What? Jesus, I pray first that you would give me the courage
and the strength to obey you and follow you because it's easy to get distracted. It's easy to walk away. I struggle with my own doubts. And yet I read this and I hear the teaching of Scripture and I know a day is coming because I believe Jesus is Lord. I pray for our church. I pray that that same hope will cause us to choose to celebrate in that hope and so order our lives in a way that will bring glory and bring benefit and bring reward on the day we stand before you. Help us to be your voice in this world. Help us to pursue you above all other things in our lives. Amen. Amen.